0: This is Psalm 95. <clears> oh, <throat> come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. Uh, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of our Lord. Well, most of us understand that the study of the Bible is a a continuing process in our lives. We're uh, never, uh, and this by God's grace, we're never allowed to master the Bible. We certainly can't master the Bible in the same way that we would uh, master, uh, say, an operating system of a computer or a phone. Uh, We're not uh, uh, able to master the Bible in the same way that you might uh, feel as though you've mastered your profession. We're certainly uh, not likely to master the Bible in the same way that we, we might master uh, the uh, music or the movies that are created by favorite artists of ours. Uh, you're, you're more likely to master being a parent or a spouse or a student than you are to master the Bible, and, and, and I get it. That's ridiculous, isn't it? We're just, we're just not called to master the Bible, not how we normally think of the uh, approach to Scripture You know, even if you've been a Christian for many decades, uh, all of us know that we always uh, have so much to learn about God through His Word. The words on the page don't change, but by God's grace, we change, we mature in such a way that this Word is living and active, piercing us, changing us over time. And so a familiar passage to us, a passage that we have read uh, hundreds of times over the the duration of our Christian lives can uh, be read afresh. As if we'd never read it before, a circumstance uh, in life uh, may bring this to happen. Uh, A circumstance prepares us to read a a familiar passage in a very unique way, or uh, another passage in our memory might, as we are reading a passage, uh, spring to life and and give uh, depth to the passage that we are reading, even though it's so very familiar and certainly uh, struggles in our lives can carry us to familiar passages and uh, shed bright light on our souls And so as we work to apply Scripture uh, to our lives, we continue coming back to Scripture and being fed uh, by uh, that Scripture. Uh, We read it again, and uh, by God's grace, uh, God's character and His works and His will for us actually grows before our eyes, even though we've read that passage uh, hundreds of times. And this as well. We live in a community of believers, and so we're gathering with believers and we're growing in our understanding of the Bible as our brothers and sisters grow in their understanding of the Bible. As our friendships are centered around the Bible, uh, we grow in our ability to understand the Bible to such a degree that we would never come to a point in our lives, would we, where we say, I know everything about Ephesians, and so I'm looking for other bits of info. Or I know everything about Deuteronomy, and so now I'm going to look elsewhere. We would never say that, Moses said that the Bible is no empty word for you, but your very life. Your very life. And so we should expect to always need the Bible and to never master it, even as we study ardently. Now, All of this, I know, is more complex uh, than this. We know that it's the Holy Spirit that is giving us understanding that Jesus said that the Spirit will teach us all things and bring to remembrance all of his words. We know that God uses our intellect and our feelings uh, and our actions uh, along with our time and circumstances uh, of our lives to teach us from Scripture. This is God's holy care for us by the Holy Spirit. Well, we spend time in Scripture we learn about God, we learn about redemption, we go into life uh, with the reality of who God is and what salvation is, and then we come back to the Word and we learn more about God and then we go into life and we uh, experience things that happen to us according to God's hand and then we go back into Scripture and we uh, learn afresh and we go back into life and we face uh, challenges and struggles but also blessings and and things for which we praise God mightily for and then we go back into His Word and we learn about Him more and more you see what's happening here. There's this this cycle in which God sends us into the world and we uh, experience the world fully and we come back into His Word and there's something there for us and we go out and we come back we go out and come back we want the Word to always be with us but it's sometimes our circumstances that uh, happen around us that allow us to understand God's Word and this is by His Spirit. So, this is just a principle, all of us know that, but, but I understand that we know that, but I want you to understand that that same principle uh, is actually being unfurled before our eyes in Psalm 95. Because the poet, he's describing a cycle. He's describing a cycle whereby we worship God as a church body, and then we go out into the world and we live life. Uh, But what do we need? We need to come back and we need to worship uh, with our brothers and sisters in the corporate body. Uh, And then we go out into the world uh, and uh, we live life, and we then come back and we worship with our brothers and sisters. You see what this is? There's a cycle that is happening here in Psalm 95. The first command in verse 1. And it is a command. Uh, the command is to come and sing to the Lord, praising him for salvation. We uh, we then see in verse 6, it's a command. Another command. Uh, we're commanded to come and to bow down to him, acknowledging that we belong to him. And then at the very end of verse 7, while it's not a command, it's an appeal to, to take stock of your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And then that whole cycle, it it, it repeats itself again. Uh, we sing to the Lord. We bow down to Him. Uh, we go out and live a life that's colored by that worship. And we uh, understand the fickleness, the weakness of our heart. And then we come back and we sing to the Lord. And we bow down to Him. And then we go out into the world. We understand things about our heart. And we and we and you see uh, verse 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 1, verse 6, verse 7. And all the while... The poet is telling us that living inside the gospel is, to be sure, thanking God for our salvation and his ownership over us, but it's also listening to him on a daily basis. Living inside the gospel is thanking God for our salvation and his ownership over us, but it's also listening to him on a daily basis. Now, for the very outline of the sermon, I'd like to uh, spend a little bit of time on each of these cycles, uh, picking up pace as we make our way to the latter part of verse 7. And the first in verses 1 through 5, uh, come to sing because he is our salvation. Come to sing because he is our salvation. It's very important that uh, we acknowledge before we get too deep that God has made his people to worship him together. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The writer of Hebrews says that we are not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. We know this. And we know that God spoke to Adam in the Garden of Eden and he said that it is not good for man to be alone. But he didn't give us just marriage. He gave us the church body. That as a church body we actually would uh, uh, grow alongside one another as a family that belongs to God. And so this psalm is all about being together as a community of believers. There's proof all over the place. You see, the poet is calling not one person. The poet is calling a body of people to come The poet is speaking with a loud voice that the voice might reach many. And he's calling to them, uh, come together as a body. Every command is addressed to a plural body of believers. And when they come, uh, they don't come one by one. Look what the poet says. uh, Together they make a joyful noise. Together they worship and bow down. And not only this, a body of people hearing the words of the poet being brought together that they might be together. Not only that, uh, he says this. The poet says, uh, let us come into his presence. and, And I want you to hear, let us. The poet himself joins with those whom he is commanding to come. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise to him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Do you hear that? This remarkable uh, voice of plurality as the people are, are brought together. And then finally, the, the, the appeal at the very end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's difficult to see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's very clear. When he says, today, if you hear his voice, he's not speaking to one person. He's speaking to the body as a whole. If you hear his voice, then don't harden your hearts. I think of something that Eugene Peterson says in his uh, memoirs he 's reflecting upon his life as a pastor of a small church, and he says that the overall context of my particular assignment in the pastoral vocation, as much as I 'm able to do it, is to see to it that none of these men and women become aware or none of the, that none of these men and women forget to be aware of the possibilities and the promises of living out in personal and local detail what is involved in following Jesus it's just a, it's a great statement about what it means to be a pastor. Uh, he he doesn't want these people to uh to lose that awareness of the possibilities and the promise of living out uh, a life in which they follow Jesus. But then Peterson says this. He says, "I'm called to do that in vocation, but I'm also called to be a companion to them as we do it together." Well, I think that's That's the heart of the poet in Psalm 95. He's calling people together that they would worship God, but he himself is a worshiper of God, and he worships with them. It's so challenging for a pastor to take on the mantle, not merely of helping people to follow Jesus, but following Jesus right alongside, with them, in their midst, next to them, that we might all follow Jesus together. Every time the poet of this psalm says, let us, he's commenting on how we're to grow and mature as Christian people, all of us, together. It's a community of believers. And so the poet commands the church body first to sing to the Lord, but, but why are they to sing to the Lord? And he says in verse 1, answering very quickly, because he's the rock of our salvation, Verses 1 through 5 tell us to come and sing uh, for that reason, because he is the rock of our salvation. Just a few things to notice. A rock, um, uh, what what a wonderful picture that is. It's not hard to understand. What is it about a rock that the poet is referencing? Well, a rock is immovable. Today, we blast through them to make a roadway, but the poet's audience was aware of engineering skill, the skill to carve into rock and to to split rock. The audience was aware of that, but there's a quality about the rock that's important to the poet, and they understand that. They know how to go around a rock rather than go through it the image of a rock is here because instinctively the original audience would know that a rock is immovable, unavoidable. The Hebrew word itself conjures up an image of a massive outcropping from a cliff or a chain of rocks that extend from the mountain uh, into the desert valley. This is the kind of work, kind of rock uh, that uh, you if you can't work with it then you build on it or you just walk away. It's not breakable, it's not movable. And so the saving work of God, it's like an outcropping of hard rock that stands out against the soft land around it. When the poet writes in verse 5 about, his, uh, about God's uh, hands forming the dry land and the sea, we're invited to think about the firmness of salvation, so strong that it can bound up the raging waters. And when the poet writes in verse 4 about the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain, we're invited to think about the reach of salvation. There's no place that's untouched by salvation. And when the poet writes in verse 3 about the greatness of God above all gods, we're invited to think about the authority of salvation. No one can take it away. These, these images then that follow uh, the picture of a rock of salvation all serve to tell us more about that rock of salvation. God's salvation is strong. God's salvation, it reaches everywhere. God's salvation, it is authoritative, the handiwork of him alone. The greatest element of salvation, however, I actually skipped. Maybe you caught it. It's not merely that this salvation of God is objectively strong, has an objectively far-ranging scope, is objectively authoritative. No. What does the poet say? The poet says, uh, Let us make a joyful noise noise to the rock of our salvation. He says in verse two something similar when he says, Let us come into his presence. That rock salvation of God is strong and reaches everywhere and is authoritative, but it's also near. And the poet wants us to cry that out in confidence. God is our salvation. There's no object for which, as Christians, we ought to be pining for or hoping for apart from the salvation that comes from God. I wonder if what the poet is addressing here is he's addressing the fact that the world is filled with distractions and distractedness for us. That our hearts are constantly angling for something other than that rock. But the poet is reminding us to uh, say that there is no competition to the salvation of God. There's no stronger, no farther reaching, there's no more authoritative rock. He is our rock. We could say it this way. The only rock of salvation has come to us so poign- poignantly that we could as people stand together and point at that rock, gaze at that rock. Sing to that one rock. the singing is interesting in Psalm 95. The the singing is a singing that, as I've said, is is a singing that's in a unified voice. All of us singing together. But the word that he uses for singing is is a word that has volume attached to it. It really would be better translated as singing loudly. And I want you to just imagine that. The poet is calling a body of people to come to him, to stand around him. And then that body of people that is commanded to sing, uh, the poet himself joins in that song. And they sing, but they sing loudly. Not just because of the number of people, but because of the volume of the singing one by one. And as they sing, what are they doing? Uh, They're uh, pointing at a rock or gazing at a rock. That one rock amidst the myriad of distractions of this World, That picture is glorious, singing in a unified voice, directed at a rock. Uh, I do wonder if uh, part of this is uh, a picture of what evangelism really ought to look like. The church of God, standing in a distracted, confused world. Knowing that the sands are shifting all around them, uh, yet all pointed at that rock, singing praise to that rock, knowing that that rock will never fail them. And I wonder about the watching world, would that the church sing to God the rock of salvation when she swirls in a myriad of so many distractions? I also think of the, of the Greeks, that very last week of Jesus' life on earth, and, and these uh, Greek uh, believers or God-fearers or uh, perhaps curious onlookers or perhaps all of those. Uh, they come to Jesus and, or come to Philip in John 12, and you know what they say. What do they say? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The world will never come and wish to see Jesus if the church doesn't stand. And gaze at that rock, singing loudly, praising God for their salvation. Well, so there's the first command, the first command, uh, verse one, reaching on into verse five. There's another command, a, a Hebrew word that stands out to us as being very forceful. Uh, not only is God our Savior, we point out, uh, point Him out by singing to Him, but we're all, we are also God's sheep. And this is somewhat as, as the, uh, as like the other side of the equation. The poet comes. Uh, poet stands before us and he commands us to come to praise God, the rock of our salvation. But the poet also commands us to come and to uh, bow down, to kneel before him. One of those is very uh, noisy, isn't it? There is fervent activity in that first command, come, make a loud noise. But here it's come and bow down. Come and kneel. And furthermore, uh, here in verses six and seven, uh, this command is here not because uh, God is our salvation, but rather because he has made us his sheep. He has asserted uh, some kind of ownership over us. And so when the poet says in verse 7 that he is our God, he's actually echoing what he's already said in verses 1 through 5. Yes, he is our God. We sing to our God. He is the rock of our salvation. But then he goes on in verse 7 and he says that, that we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And here he's, he's actually saying something a bit more, something different than what he said in verses 1 through 5. Now, I read verses 6 and 7 as a step uh, in addition to verses 1 through 5. This is another uh, step in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, the poet calls us a uh, sheep of God's hand to do uh, God's will. You know, at first, the the poet said to us that uh, we are the kind of people who uh, sing to God because he is our rock. But now uh, we're looking at the other side of the coin and we begin to see uh, this is not what I call God. This is what God calls me. God calls me something. He calls me uh, a sheep of his pastor. Now, this This we need to admit, even if we've been Christians for many, many years, we need to admit that there's at least a little bit of offensiveness in this. I'm okay with the first part, verses 1 through 5, singing praise to God. He's the rock of of our salvation. But in verses 6 and 7, I'm actually called to kneel down, to bow, to worship before him. Why? Because he says something about me. He says that he is, speaking colloquially, our boss. The offense is that we are actually owned by someone. But there's, there's also the offense that we are not able to own ourselves. It's offensive to say that we work for someone. And it's offensive to say that we're not sole proprietors. There's a lot of offense in this. Kneel and bow down because you're, you're owned by God. So on the one hand, there's great offense. I cannot be my own shepherd. I cannot manage my own pasture. I cannot live outside of God's pasture. I belong to Him. And so on the one hand, there's, there's an offense to that, but on the other hand, there's great comfort. I think it's just beautiful that Christianity tells us that God must first offend us before He can comfort us. That is one of the beauties of Christianity. He offends us by telling us who we really are as sinners and what we need. And then he comforts us by providing all that we need that we would be reconciled to him. And here, and here uh, he is offending us by telling us that we cannot be our own master, our own shepherd. We cannot build for ourselves our own pasture. But even as he says that to us, he says that I know one who can care for you. The poet's commanding us to praise the name of God, and he knows that we're going to find this praising God as the rock of our salvation uh, sensible, even perhaps easy. But then he says to us, wait just a second. It's not merely a matter of praising God because he's the rock of your salvation. It's a matter of being reminded that you are the kind of person that likes to live alone and do your own thing. But God, he owns you. And so here we have this happy reminder a reminder, uh, not merely that you can't be your own boss, but a reminder that you belong to him. We could say it this way. The poet is inviting us, encouraging us, and he's, uh, uh, as he gathers us, he's actually putting words into our mouth. And the, those words are that we would not merely praise God for his greatness, but we would say with our lips and with our hearts that we are the people of your pasture and the sheep of your hand, God. Isn't that marvelous? We praise him for being the rock of our salvation, but we also understand that he offends us by telling us that we cannot be our own bosses, but he says he is our loving, caring shepherd. Uh, The first part of the song is, is the regard that we have for God, and the second part of the song is the regard that he has for us, that you are my sheep in my pasture. Uh, there is a, <clears throat> a funny illustration of a, a rocking chair in which a, a Swiss theologian looks at the rocking chair as being distinctly American because Americans, they can't sit still. They're just always rocking. This, of course, that would, that would be uh, an American favorite piece of furniture. They can't sit still. But look what the poet is telling us in verse 6. Kneel before the Lord. In verse 7, he tells us to say along with him, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Let me tell you where we are so far. Living inside the gospel, it's thanking God for our salvation. He is the rock of our salvation, and we sing praises to him for that. But living inside the gospel is not just that. Living inside the gospel is thanking God for his ownership over us. We can praise him for salvation, can't we? In an arrogant way. We can praise God for salvation uh, almost as if we have chosen him among all the possible gods. And even as we're praising God for salvation, uh, we are uh, leaving a little bit of meat on the bone for us that we can uh, praise ourselves for choosing Christianity or uh, wisely following such a good God. We can praise him for salvation in an arrogant way. But... Look what the the poet does. He he adds to this praising God for salvation this, that we uh, praise him with a sense of submission to his ownership. He is the one who keeps me safe. He is the one who feeds me. He is the one who guides me. And he is the one who gets to do whatever he wants with me. You see, belonging to him is actually necessary to praising him. Do you understand that? Belonging to him as his sheep is actually necessary to properly praising him. And so the poet carries us on this two-step process. And we need both of these things. When we praise him, we're we're stating that he is the object of our salvation. And when we bow to him, we're stating that that we are the object of his affection. I want you to listen to that again. When we praise God we're stating that he is the object of our salvation. But when we bow down to him, we are stating that he is, or that we are the object of his affection. And it goes both ways, such as the relationship that God brings us into through Jesus Christ. So living inside the gospel, it's thanking God for our salvation, the rock of our salvation, but it's also thanking for his ownership. But notice what the, what the poet does next. It's also listening to God on a daily basis. Verse, uh, the very end of verse 7 to the end of the, of the psalm is where I want to conclude this morning. The poet says, come listen, uh, because our hearts are so fickle. At the end of verse 7, the tone changes. It's from, from a command to a warning of sorts. Look at the very end of verse 7 today. The tone, it changes. Exclamation points at the beginning, but they're not there at the end. It changes from a command to a warning or from a declaration to almost a conversation. Instead of coming to sing, coming to kneel down, the audience is invited to look into their own hearts and to contemplate God. To do this, the poet invites the people to listen to God's people of the past. And so he mentions a scene that most likely comes from Exodus chapter 17. That's the only place in the Old Testament where Meribah and Massah are actually mentioned together. And Exodus 17, it's not a scene that happens uh, well into the 40-year wilderness. Uh, Exodus 17 happens right after they're delivered from Egypt. And the people, they cross the Red Sea and they sing God's praises, but very shortly thereafter in Rephidim, they actually uh, break out in complaint, uh, Meribah and Massah, uh, means to uh, quarrel or to have strife and so uh, they're not quarreling among themselves they're quarreling with God and they're arguing with him the people are arguing because he hasn't given them what they want he hasn't given them water to drink they're not happy that he is the rock of their salvation maybe Egypt is the rock of my salvation I was treated better there and they're not happy that they are the sheep who belong to God's pasture because he's not caring for them very well maybe that that uh, shepherd is pharaoh himself he at least cared for us do you see what happened to them and then the poet here he's he's asking us to to think about these arguers these people that were dissatisfied with god's care and the poet, he's not replaying this Exodus 17 scene so that he can fill everyone with guilt. And he's not replaying the scene uh, just for their amusement, as if it's a story about dead people from uh, by, a bygone era. Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, referring to that first generation of Hebrews that came from, uh, were, that were delivered out of Egypt. Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. The very end of this psalm, it ends with something that we are to learn. And here's what we're to learn. My brother and my sister, even though you profess faith in Jesus Christ, your heart still remains fickle. And so too does mine. Mine. In our, in our very soul, our, our intellect, our feelings, our action, God is the rock of our salvation, we are the people of his pasture, and yet we still struggle with the circumstances of daily life. We still struggle with the circumstances of our indwelling sin, and we struggle against the evil one who opposes all that's good. What does that mean? It means that you and I, even as professing Christians, especially as professing Christians, are the kind of people who still have need day by day for God. I sometimes don't want to acknowledge that God is my salvation. I sometimes don't want to live as if my life is surrounded by his pasture. Is this you? Certainly me. Sometimes I live that way and sometimes you live that way. The poet, in in a sense, he's being brutally honest. The whole tone shifts at the end of Psalm 95, and the poet doesn't seem to be afraid about that at all. Why? Because at the very end of the psalm, the poet is inviting you to do something, to read it again, to read it again. Do you sometimes not want to acknowledge that God is your salvation, that maybe salvation is elsewhere? Do you sometimes not want to live as if your life is uh, surrounded by his pastor, that your life is actually your own pastor? Does Does that happen sometimes? And the poet says to you, come, sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of your salvation. Make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And come do this with your church family. And then he says, come, worship and bow down to him, kneel before your maker as a member of his pasture, as a sheep of his hand, and come do this with your church family. And then the poet allows us to go out into the world with humility, to to tell us that today, don't harden your hearts. Today, don't look for salvation elsewhere. Today, don't try and build your own sheepfold. Your heart is fickle, and you need God's grace every day. And then what? We notice our fickle heart. We cry out to God for help. And the poet says, Come, sing to the Lord. Come, worship and bow down to him. Do you see what's happening in this psalm? It's like this, this, this cycle that is refining us over and over again. Uh, the, the, the psalmist understands something about our hearts, and we need to understand that, understand that about our hearts. And the poet understands something about our needs. And we need to be with our brothers and sisters, and we need to be reminded to praise him for our salvation. And we need to be reminded to bow down before him as our shepherd. Samuel Rutherford, and I'll close with this, uh, just talking about the Christian life, uh, was able to say uh, that, you know, temptations are hard in life, but these temptations in the gospel of grace are actually helpful for us. He says, if my waters should stand, they would rot. And here's what he means by that. If my waters uh, should stand, they would rot. He says that faith needs uh, the sharp winter storm in its face. Faith needs the sharp winter storm in its face. He says that uh, grace, uh, daily grace, it withers without adversity. And then he goes on to say that the devil is but God's master fencer to teach us how to handle our weapons. Samuel Rutherford, as as a believer, is able to acknowledge that the Christian life is a Christian life in which the hardships, the afflictions of life actually turn into blessings for us. They remind us of who we are, how fragile we are. They remind us of our constant need for God's grace. And then we come together with our brothers and sisters and in our weakness, in our failings, acknowledging that, knowing that about ourselves, we praise God. He is the rock of our salvation. And in our fickleness of heart, in our struggles with sin, we come before God and we bow down before him. And we praise him because he has made us. Members of his pasture. And then we go out into the world. And we continue to acknowledge our weakness. This. Is the ordinary Christian life. Come. Let us sing. Come. Let us worship and bow down. He is a good God to us. Let's pray together. Our holy father we're grateful that you have not taken us from uh, this world, that you have left us in this world. Jesus said that would be the case. But as you have left us in this world, you have not left us alone. We have so many things to thank you for. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the rock of our salvation. We thank you, Heavenly Father, uh, that you have uh, made us a, a sheep of your pasture. We thank you and we praise you. But we also thank you, Heavenly Father, that as we go out into this world, we taste the fickleness of our hearts, that we are not left alone, that you strengthen and encourage us. We praise you for doing that this very morning, all together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.